Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, so Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you felt a great disturbance in the Force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. This is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Clank. And this is the Inglorious Trexperts podcast. For every hour of television on the air, thousands of man hours have gone into making it. From the biggest of celebrities and the highest of studio executives to the lowest of PAs and unpaid interns, all have unique experiences in the making of the episode. One week or even one day of work can create a lifetime of stories, which adds to the agony and the ecstasy of Hollywood. For every success story, there are a thousand disappointments. Most of these stories go unheard, except in those rare times when films or franchises ignite the imaginations of fans across the world. Fans eager to learn every aspect of production and unearth those buried stories. As we're speaking today, Star Trek has recently celebrated its 55th anniversary and remains one of the most successful franchises of all time. Our guests on the show today have written a new book, Star Trek A Celebration, which looks back on the production and success of the original series. Returning guests, Ben Robinson, and first time on the show, but longtime friend of the podcast, Ian Spelling. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So this book is a follow-up to your successful book from last year, which, Ben, we had you on the show to talk about, uh, Star Trek Voyager Celebration. Um, What was kind of the the impetus for uh, revisit the original series with this book? Oh, well, I I never shut up about the original series. It's part (laughs) of it. 
The other thing I think was that we realized there'd never been a book that put everything together. I mean, there's the Stephen Whitfield book from way back when in the 60s, which is a little bit of a um, propaganda job, um, but also didn't have a lot of pictures in it. So it's all about the pictures. <laughs> pictures are very important. We all need pictures. I like a picture. Um, and television is a visual medium. Um, so I very much wanted to to do something that was the way I wanted to look at the original series. So, we, you know, the same format as the Voyager book, where it was like looking at each of the characters, looking at the work of each of the departments, picking up on, uh, you know, individual little bits and pieces that made sense. And Ian found some really cool ones like the, uh, the original phaser rifle and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, just kind of bring it all together, you know. Um, even and find stuff that even Ian and I, and I'm willing to bet even Mark um, and Darren didn't know about Star Trek. Yes, that is very true. It's very true, and it's um, a glorious book. Has so many uh, very high definition pictures, behind the scenes images, which is particularly uh, amazing. Um, Ian, since it's the first time you've been on the show, uh, how did you first discover Star Trek? Like, what kind of was the origin of your fan base? Uh, in the, I guess it was the, the mid to late seventies. I was a kid growing up on Long Island, channel 11, PIX, WPIX, uh, picks channel 11. They had the repeats at six and 11 o'clock. And, uh, I became a fan. I wasn't obsessed. I didn't know every single pip on this character's, you know, shirt. It wasn't my thing, but I loved the stories. I loved the performances. I loved the visual effects. Um, I love the whole package and I watch the shows repeatedly. I remember saying to my mom, is it all right if I watch, you know, have dinner in my room and watch the six o'clock episode? And that started my interest. And then it's a long story, but the short version is when I started to get into journalism, my kind of gateway was Star Trek. I went to a couple of conventions uh, in New York City and I met some of the actors from the shows and asked if they would talk to me for my college newspaper. That led to Starlog, which led to the licensed magazines, which led to StarTrek.com, which led to this book, and so on. So really, it's, it's what got me into journalism. It's amazing because your, your work in journalism uh, is, is, especially in Star Trek and kind of fan communities, it's so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a tentpole, really. I mean, you worked on Starlog, you worked on so many things. And it's always amazing to me how, how fans were able to, and are still able to just make, you know, careers out of, out of their passion, out of their fan base. You know, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Now I consider myself incredibly lucky that I've gotten to write about something I love. And if you had told me 30 years ago, or even more 35 years ago, that, you know, I'd be moderating panels or a bucket list thing has always been to write a book, right? Every fan wants to write a book. Ben asked me, to co-write this with him. I mean, it fell into my lap. I mean, it, it's been great. You know, I've been an extra on Star Trek. Uh, I've, had, I've gotten to visit the sets of all the, the shows and a lot of the movies. It, it's been a great ride. I wouldn't trade it for a thing. There are, there are far worse ways of making a living. Promise you that. And you're still making residuals off that extra thing, right? No. <laughs> so, hey, don't get residuals for uh, being an extra. Uh, I was uh, charmed, and I had a line of dialogue. And I still make about $100 a year for <laughs> one line of dialogue. Are wow. you okay? That I said in 2005. Wow. I guess yeah. Charmed is on the air quite a bit. Like, it is. Just yeah. thinking it through. Because 
Yeah, I, I do not get that much residuals off of my <laughs> one episode of Pandora that I co wrote. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, the extras are far more important, I guess, than the writers. <laughs> who, who gets? <laughs> yeah, who needs writers? Overrated. You know, stuff just writes itself, right? It's just so easy. Everyone can write words. <laughs> I thought the actors made it up. I thought it was real. I thought we were watching live scenes. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> anyway, sorry, uh, Lisa, I think you had a question there. I was just wondering, um, at what point uh, did you get involved in the in the book? I mean, how long has it taken you to write it? Ben, why don't you start and I'll jump in. I'm trying to remember. I remember a very, very intense period of about three months, which would have been, what, spring? Yep. This year, when we were doing almost nothing else. Um, but we probably first started talking about about a year ago. Right. A little bit more than a year, yeah. It's about a year that we started talking about it. Actually, it was about September of last year uh, that we started talking about it. And then things had to fall into place. And then, as, as Ben said, it was three, four months of solid writing. And it's not an exaggeration. We, we, we were like counting pages one day. And it was a 50-50 split. You know, we, we each had a little yeah. impact on each other's chapters. But it was, it was crazy. Uh, that it, it literally came out to. If, if the book is uh, 256 pages, it's literally you know 128 pages each, almost. It's crazy. Yeah, how uh, in you know the Star Trek Voyager book was, I think, fantastic. And and how much of this book creating it was based upon the positive reception that you had to that one? Ah, I don't always. I was going to do what I wanted to do anyway. It was very gratifying. Let's put it that way. It was very gratifying that people responded well to Voyager. Um, I think there's a bit of, um, it, you know, each show has its own content, has its own challenges. So we couldn't just replicate the content exactly from Voyager for the original series, you know. Um, you know, I think we did, 35 new interviews for the Voyager book. There, there, you know, there are not 35 people who are still alive from the original series. <laughs> um, and we know because we counted them up. Actually, there are because all the, all the female guest stars were all children when they were in it, which is, <laughs> you know, it's like the average age of the female guest stars is something like 26. So they are all just around 80 now um, or in their 80s, uh, whereas the men were a little older, a little older, funnily enough. Um, so we knew it, it was kind of going to be the same, but different. And that was, I guess, the beginning of our conversation. So I like saying to Ian, okay, look, what have we got that people haven't seen? Who did we talk to that maybe, you know, said something that people have forgotten about? Um, what would be cool? You know, what, what haven't we seen? Um, like post-production, I realized like we, I, you know, Ian and I both read everything ever published about Star Trek. So we're like, oh, I haven't seen much on post. Um, let's see who's still around. It turned out there were some young editors or assistant editors who we could still talk to. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of, uh, you know, how do you make it work? How do you make it, you know, the, the formula was right, but the content would have to be a bit different. You know, Ian, I'd love to bounce that question, uh, the latter part of that question off of, of you as well, because uh, so much has been written about Star Trek, like right. just so many books. There's been just detailed accounts of everything you could possibly imagine, um, and not to mention the millions of articles that have obviously been written by now. Like, what was the approach with this book? You both wanted it to be new, but I think, too, the book is is very accessible to to the average reader. How did you find that balance? And 
And what did you do to make sure that like, oh yeah, this is worth picking up for even the hardcore fans out there? Exactly. Well, exactly what you were saying is kind of our mission statement. Ben and I both sat there and we said, okay, what have we read before? What do we, what have we read that we didn't read enough about that we wanted to see if we could dig up more of the story? Uh, and then the challenge was to make it accessible to somebody who's brand new. If somebody is watching Star Trek as a result of Discovery and wants to better understand the original show and where it all came from, this book is for them. If somebody's a hardcore fan who thinks they've read and know everything about the show, they will find some new material in here. And I promise you, a lot of the photos they will have never seen before. So we'll talk more about the photos later, but that, that is a key component of the book. So really, it was just a matter of going in. The other key thing that Ben and I wanted to do was separate myth from reality. Uh, there, there was a lot of myth building over the years as a result of things. Look, Gene Roddenberry was the genius who created this thing, but he was an imperfect man. So the whole you know, great bird of the galaxy storyline is, is fabulous. But for him, part of this was a business. He was trying to make money. He wanted the show to last. He found great people to play these roles. He did hire good people to make his vision a reality. And it did stink for him when he gave up some of that power later on. And, you know, the show suffered for it. Uh, but he pissed off a lot of people in the meantime when he was asserting his power. So, you know, he couldn't have it both ways, right? So we tried to look at everything that's been told fairly and write it that way uh, so that people do get that introduction. So yes, there is going to be some repetition of stories that have been told before, but what we have here is as accurate as it can be told is the best way to put it. Um, we, we're not out there to burnish anyone's egos and we're not out there to burn anyone down. Uh, so we're right in the middle with the way things happened and wanted to tell the truth of that, those things. And again, that's what's in the book. And then the other key thing was, I literally sat there and said, I want to interview this person if they're still alive. And I, be, I was like the sleuth on this. And Ben did the same thing with some of the people he interviewed. I desperately wanted that phaser rifle story in there. Because where did this crazy rifle come from? Why did we only see it once? Why, where did it go? And it turned out that Ruben Klamer, the man who created it, do you remember the game of life that we all played as kids? Yeah. He was an inventor. He created the game. Huh. He's in the board game hall of fame for inventing life. Okay. And he created the gun for a man from uncle, the, the toy prop that was sold like a million of those guns. Roddenberry brought him in to do Star Trek with the discussion of a deal that maybe Klamer's company would make the resulting toy. It didn't happen. The gun got used, the rifle got used once, and they gave it back to him. But it also got used in a photo shoot, a very famous photo shoot. And boom, that gun, that photo shoot, and the use of it in Where No Man Has Gone Before convinced NBC that the show could be an action show as well as kind of a heady sci-fi show. And it really might have helped sell the show. So we, I, I personally wanted to make sure that Ruben Klamer got his two minutes of recognition in the book. And now he does. And the sad thing was, he was really ill. I was originally told by his assistant, they didn't think they could get him for me. And then one day my phone rang, this is in March of this year. Uh, Mr. Klamer's having a good day. Do you want to talk to him? I dropped everything and spoke to him right on the spot. 
and we got the interview done and he passed away last month. So I'm thrilled that we have him in the book. So that's one of those examples of what you guys are talking about. Did you find out anything that surprised even you? Uh, Ben, tell your story. Muhammad Ali? Yeah. That was was the one I'd never heard. Um, So I tracked down um, a guy who'd worked in post-production He's like, oh yeah, there was the time that I took Muhammad Ali up to meet Michelle Nichols. It's like, what? Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> well, how have I never heard this story? What happened? And he basically, uh, he'd been working in the Desley Building, and he'd looked over the road and seen seen Muhammad Ali crossing the road. And he was like, somehow arranged to be in reception when he got there. Turned out Ali was coming to visit um, Bill Cosby, who was on I Spy, which was filming on the same on the lot. And when they got there, Cosby was, he said, literally, so he, he sort of walked him over and he said, Cosby was literally tied to a chair. And he said, like, you could see I'm tied up. I was going <laughs> to go and introduce him to Michelle. Um, would you take him over and do that? So he tells the story as he's walking over there and he says, you know, and he calls him Cassius Clare and he thinks, oh shit, I'm going to get, oh, you know, I'm <laughs> terrified now. Um, and Ali's like saying, oh, do you think she'll want to meet me? Do you think she want to meet me? You don't think it's an imposition? Do you think I'm like, you know, yeah, okay. I think she probably does. Uh, and then they got there and Michelle wasn't working. So everybody else, everybody else broke off production and spent like a, an hour or so talking to him and then he went away again. But that's like, I'd never heard that story. And how cool um, is it that Ali, who was this braggadocious guy, was like, do you think Michelle Nichols will want to meet me? Yeah, that, yeah. That's the part that wowed me. Yeah. Uh, you tell the story in there about um, uh, Leonard Nimoy doing an appearance at the Medford, Oregon uh, Rose Parade, where he was like mobbed on the. No, on I'm never going to do this again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is incredible. I grew up in Oregon, and I do not think of Medford as a Star Trek fan base community. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like Redneckville. I don't, and it's just it's it speaks more to like the power of Star Trek that. You know, as you just said, Muhammad Ali was starstruck by you know, uh, by by seeing uh, Michelle Nichols and like the 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 universal love of Star Trek at the time, which I don't think we even with the most hardcore fan base we have today with Marvel or whatever, you know, like the rabid you know box office returns, we just we haven't quite hit that ever again, you know. I think that, that um, you know, Ian was talking about trying to peel some of the myths away and to think about what Star Trek was and, you know, get the context of it. I mean, these were guys who worked for three years on a show that, yeah, it was never, never a big hit, but it was never such a disaster that it got cancelled, or at least not till the third year. And there's, you know, Gene had this kind of whole thing of like, oh, the network had it in for us. It's like, if the network had it in for them, they wouldn't have been on air. I mean, that's just the reality of things. And you forget that, that, you know, a show that failed still had 40 million people watching it. Yeah. You know, um, and that, that story with Leonard, Leonard was the first, first Star Trek interview I ever did. And it's like still one of the best things I've ever done in my life is like, you know, you pick up the phone and there's Leonard Nimoy. Um, and he said, I was, you know, that, that was like, I'm never doing this again. He said people offered him huge amounts of money to come to circuses dressed as Spock or to do whatever. And he was like, this is just dangerous. He said, you know, there were just so many people trying to get to him that he was like, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of, that thing about stripping away the myths. It's like, you know, people were working on a, a TV show that was being watched by 
half the people watching TV or something, 40% of the people watching TV. And, uh, you know, they were pretty happy to be doing that. They weren't all going, oh, I don't like person A or whatever. They were just, you know, grateful to be working. And then years later, they were like, oh, yeah, person A is not so nice, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I heard uh, one person refer to it the other day about how, like, yeah, you know, as time goes on, you're always trying, and they would go to these conventions, you're always like trying to add a new element to the story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because like the more drama, the more new material you can bring to it, it can often like, you know, inflate the fan base and and get you another gig, get you another convention panel, you know, get a bit more numbers there. So it's like, at some point, your stories just get so big. And for a lot of these people, they just showed up at 5am, 4am, you know, work their way through the day. And, you know, so. well, what's interesting is the stories also sometimes get small in that, and we cover this in the book a teeny bit, uh, the Horda, when Janusz yeah. Prochaska walked into the production office to show off this creature that he cre- had created, the people in the room at the time had different versions of that same story. Did he lay an egg? Did he <laughs> not lay an egg? Did he you know, roll around. Did he jump in the room? I mean, there were all sorts of stories. And you had, who was it, Ben Solo? And uh, uh, so it's Bob, Bob Justman. Right. He told me the story face to face. Dorothy and Gene Coon. And Coon. So and all three of them have slightly different versions of the story. And they were all in yeah. Did it happen in, in Coon's office? Did it happen out on the back lot? Uh, did the did Janos roll over a rubber chicken and then chuck some bones out the back? Which is the one I believe. That's the one that makes <laughs> sense to me. Or did he lay an egg? And it's like, well, actually, then the whole, you know, the whole devil in the dark thing is like, no, I think Coon already had an idea about eggs. Right. You know. I mean, that, and that's, you know, granular. That's all the way... I mean, that was at the time. And this was, th- those two guys wrote a book together and couldn't get it <laughs> <way> straight. <laughs> well, I think half the time Herb wasn't there. I think that's why Herb couldn't get his story straight. Right. Um, <laughs> he's a studio executive. He's not going to be down there with the man showing off his monster costume. Right. Who knows? Well, and I think what makes the book so fascinating too, as I'm reading through it, is that not only do you tell the stories that, uh, to make it kind of general and accessible for, for anyone, but you also focus in on some of the uh, characters and stories that people just never heard. And I was amazed when I was, I, I rewatched the cage, uh, the pilot, the cage a few uh, months ago and reading through the book, you highlight a lot of the auxiliary characters, ancillary characters who just never get mentioned ever. <laughs> and even amongst the hardcore fan base, like there was that period of time when everyone, you know, it was trendy and cool to know that you you were a fan of Captain Pike or something like that. But like, you, we never think about the yeoman at the time or, you know, uh, Ensign Tyler, things like that. And you uh, not only did you did you uh, highlight them, but also, you know, you had interviews with these people and talked about this time. And some of them remembered it very well. Others of them, it was a four-day gig. They, they worked their time and then they got out of there and they, you know, passed into memory. And, and it's, uh, it's a fantastic thing. I guess... Um, both like uh, the question being like, what was kind of the hardest person you had to find, and and the biggest like, yeah, we got this person for the book. Uh, I I want. No. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say we found them, so you know they're all equally hard or easy. Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, a lot of it on my end was just good old school sleuthing. I would go on Google, I would go on the white pages. I would go on wherever and try to find uh, some of these people. I wanted Maggie Threat, who was one of Mud's women. 
because I had rarely seen interviews with her. Uh, she had had a hit single or a single of 45 when she was, uh, I think, 13 or 14 years old. Uh, and you had people who got the job and quit. And one of the actors, one of the actresses went off to do the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming and didn't want to stay on the show, which was amazing to me. So literally, I just found these people and tracked them down and called them and said, hello, my name is Ian Spelling. I'm writing the official book on the uh, 55th anniversary of the original show. Would you chat with me? And I don't think anybody said no on that, uh, you know, of the guest actors who were still alive. Uh, we were thrilled. And uh, in a couple of them had stories I hadn't heard. Um, one of them was the family friend of the Roddenberries and sent me, we couldn't use them in the book, but sent me photos of her as a child that Roddenberry, that Gene had taken. Huh. And it, he was Uncle Gene. It was just, it was just so cool. Um, what else? Who was hard to get? The uh, dead people, they were really difficult. They were like... Was, uh, the, yeah. They kept negotiating Well, the big thing of this was that one of the reasons I asked Ian to work with me on this or, yeah, is because between the two of us, we had interviewed pretty much everybody. Um, you know, some people like Gene, Gene Coon would have been the, the dream interview that we would have had in there that we didn't have. But I had talked to... John Meredith Lucas. I had talked to Fred Freiberger. Um, you know, we both talked to Dorothy plenty. Um, so a lot of it was about going back over the stuff that we had and trying to find the bits that um, we'd forgotten or that needed to be put together in a different way. It's like going back to your joke about, like, you know, the actors just make up the dialogue. You know, when we did those character pieces, I was really determined that it, it wasn't just an actor interview. It was, you know, there were memos. There were memos from Gene to, uh, to Dorothy and to Bob Justman about saying, oh, when we work with Kirk this year, we've got to be make sure that he doesn't come over as such a pushover. You know, we concentrated on making him likable. Let's push up the command side of it. We've got to make him seem like the man in charge, you know. Um, I, I talked to Dorothy about the evolution of Spock as a character and to be able to put that together with what Leonard said about it. Um, that that's what I hope these books do a bit differently to other people. Recognize the importance of the writers. That's what I say. Right. And then in terms of where we tried to get some things that didn't exist anymore, uh, you know, just as an example, uh, Jeffrey Hunter, I spoke to his son and he gave me this remarkable anecdote about sitting in a car with his dad talking about Star Trek. I had never heard that before. I thought mm -hmm. that was awesome. Uh, I checked in with uh, Chris Dewin, with Jimmy Dewin's son. But Jimmy was somebody, was one of the first interviews I ever did. He spoke to me uh, at a convention for my college newspaper. Um, Roddenberry, I had the honor of interviewing. There's a whole long story with my interview with Roddenberry, which I will uh, blessedly spare you. But he went out of his way to talk to a college kid twice, uh, which was absolutely amazing to me. And I sold that interview to Starlock. And uh, some of that is in, in the book. Uh, I found uh, the, a book about, and I'm just blanking on the actor right now. Hang on. But um, it's, I found a biography uh, of one of the actors written by his wife, where she talks about his role in Star Trek. And uh, 
<laughs> blanking on the name. Ben, help me here. Um, I'm trying to remember who you're thinking of. I found the Sean Kenny book. I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, when you said like so much had been published, and yes, it has, but it's like in this magazine article or in that, you're like finding an interview with Fred Phillips. It's like from 1968 inside Star Trek fanzine that was like a, before photocopiers, you know, this is like, um, so tracking that down was a, a big deal. Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff and just trying to pull it together from all these different sources. So I think even if you have kind of read everything, it's not being put together in one place. And the one I couldn't remember was Lloyd Haynes, who played Lieutenant Alton. Uh, right. yeah. His wife had written a lovely, lovely book. And, uh, and talk about myths. There's Michelle saying, oh, he went, I can't remember the name of the series because I'm English, I didn't see it, but he went off to do this. Uh, the, there was kind of like the Blackwood Jungle kind of TV show that he was right. in that was a big yeah. hit. And it's like, uh, no, he did that three years later. That's not why he wasn't on the show. Right, know? Room 222 is what you're talking about. Yeah, right. That's the one, Room 222, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so amazing when you look at, especially um, for the original series, how much material was managed to manage has managed to still exist because at the time they just wrote memos for everything like these days we write emails or have phone calls but at the time they just wrote these like lengthy memos that still exist today and so i imagine part of the challenge was just sifting through all of the material that exists out there and being like well we should use this we should not use this you know things like that yeah definitely and trying to find something that was relevant to a particular topic so you'd find, like I said, you'd find a memo when they're talking about what should we do with the characters. Um, one thing we dropped, I wanted to do, I was, well, I had written it, we were going to put it in, was like the whole thing about um, Joanna, Dr. McCoy's daughter, who appears in the Dorothy Rope for the season three Bible. Um, yeah, and she, the character gets uh, changed to become, uh, uh, the, the, what's her name? She's Russian in uh, Way to Eden. You know, it's so those were the kind of things that we were looking for with the, the directions that the show could have gone in. Like you were saying, all those actors, like the yeoman was meant to be a major character in the show. You go back and you look at the Bibles, the yeoman is built above Dr. McCoy. You know, it's, it, it's like the captain's yeoman is going to come in and he's going to look at her legs and they're going to have a conversation <laughs> and there'll be some cute, make cute stuff. Uh, and that's going to be a regular thing. And then when they start making the show, like any show, they're like, ah, this doesn't really work so well. Let's not do this. Um, and that, that was kind of my motive in trying to put in stuff like, yeah, look, the, the Enterprise did have a black communications officer in the second part, but it was a guy. Yeah, that, and what happened? To that, what about that guy? He's like, oh, they just cut me. You know, I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, also, like when he was talking about having found Andrea Drum, he was like, got a better offer between Where No Man and uh, Court Might Maneuver. So she went off and made a movie instead and they recast the part. It wasn't that they, did, they wanted to get rid of her. She just, you know, she'd gone. Um, and trying to see it from that kind of like, it could have been this other show. It could have been this different show. Um, I've always fascinated by that stuff. We have a lot of archive interview material in there with Majel Barrett talking about what could have been with number one, which I think is important stuff. Yeah. We actually gave her two separate chapters, <laughs> partly number one and then later as, as Chapel, because uh, it just seemed right, you know? But clearly, her life and Star Trek would have been different 
were number one, a major part of the show going forward from the pilot. Absolutely. Did you guys tap into the fan base at all to get old interviews or any kind of props or old relics? So, well, Gerald Gurian, he runs Star Trek Prop Authority, was enormously helpful. Um, all the film trims, you know, that the, um, Lincoln Enterprises Major used to sell off the film trims. So there are loads of, you know, talking about those behind the scenes pictures, there are loads of film trims out there. Of course, the ones that everyone's kept, or they've all got clapperboards in because that's the ones that people like. <laughs> so it was like, oh yeah, we can have a clapperboard with this or with this. Um, or there were quite a few for the Gorn. That was always good. Um, so Gerald was very helpful. And then uh, you get into that kind of the realm of the, the professional fans. So James Corley, who, uh, you know, built the, the replica sets for the official Star Trek original series tour. Uh, James had a lot of the official photography, you know, that had, had been lost to the uh, CBS archives. Uh, James had a lot of that and we found some, some cool pictures. I hope you know, people haven't seen before from there. And he was a massive help with that. And one of my favorite things in the book are the sketches. Uh, if you look at, I think it's page 191, there are some unbelievable before and after. You'll see the sketches and then uh, you'll see the actual finished result. So uh, it's Elon of Troyes, uh, France yes. Union. And you get the literally these unbelievable three sketches and then beneath them, the finished costumes that she is in. And it just blows my mind. That's my favorite page in the book, <laughs> is that particular page. And uh, just because it's so cool and the costumes are so close to the vision that he had. It's unbelievable to me. So, uh, and it's great that we have the ability to lay out the photos this way in the book. Uh, so there are what then, 200 photos in the book and there are a lot of them that either have rarely ever been seen or in a couple of cases never been seen. Um, I, yeah, I never, never counted them. But yeah, I mean, they definitely, we wanted to show you things you hadn't seen before. Right. Or, or maybe if you'd looked at absolutely everything, you might have seen it somewhere, but you hadn't seen it put together. So, I mean, I, you know, it was so, so I, mean, I was fortunate enough to have spent a bit of time with Matt Jeffries and Matt gave me a folder with transparencies for all of the artwork that he still had. Um, and it was only when we were doing this book, I was going through it and going, oh, actually, I don't think I've ever printed this. You know, oh, there's an alternate design for K7. I've never, you know, I've never seen that anywhere. Let's put that in. Um, and yeah, James had, uh, James Corby again, had like that um, alternate Starfleet uniform sketch that's in there. Um, yeah, there were, there were, that was one of the advantages of having two people who've spent as much of our lives as we had working on Star Trek that we would know when something was rare. Uh -huh. You know, straight away we'd be like, well, if we haven't seen it, the chances are that not that many people have seen it. Right. That, that session was a Zoom call with James. Yeah. And Welcome we, to the 21st century. Right. Yeah. We, we were kids in a candy shop just going through photos going, oh my God, I haven't seen that. Oh my God, yeah. where'd you get this? That, 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 that kind of a thing. Can we have that? And he's like, sure, <laughs> sure, calm down. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I was with uh, George Decay in Las Vegas in August and was showing him the book and he got to his chapter and there were two photos of him that he and his husband Brad were looking at and they said, Ian, we've never seen these photos. How did you get these and can we get copies? That's so great. if one of the actors on the show is seeing something, chances are like Ben saying, if he and I haven't seen it and more to the point, George Decay hasn't seen shots, there's gonna be a lot of fresh art in there for, for fans. Yeah, I, uh, I have a friend of mine 
who works uh, crew in Hollywood, and and he um, actually sent me a gift a few months ago of like he and one of his other coworkers were just cleaning out like a cupboard in some storage area for their work, and they came across these like on-set stills that had just been in this cupboard for like fifty years from the original uh, shoots, and and you know they weren't anything groundbreaking, but still, I was just like, my God, I mean, things that can just still be unearthed today—it's it's just incredible. You know, they they took and and compiled so much material to make these shows, you know, back then. And I, and, and it's, it's just remarkable. You could, I'm sure you could do 15 more volumes of this single book and you'd still be uh, putting yeah. new and amazing things in there. You know, it's, it's yeah. amazing. Well, like Ben said, we had to cut the whole Joanna thing. I, I can tell you what do we cut at least a half dozen of the guest stars. Yeah, uh, yeah. do you? Just honestly, the truth is you have a limited amount of space and uh, you know, this is like a, a greatest hits package in many ways. <laughs> and we, we had to focus on the greatest of the greatest hits. Yes. Plus a few things you hadn't heard before, yeah. like the live versions or the, the acoustic yeah. tracks yeah. or something like that. The rarities. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite parts was you, you include all the memos of the original opening uh, narration. Like at the time, like Roddenberry, when we look at, at television from the, from the era, I think a lot of people forget that like the opening narration or the opening song was a very important aspect because episodic television, the hope was that you would be gaining new viewers every week. So you'd have like an opening song or an opening narration to basically tell the viewer, like, this is what the show is going to be, you know? And that's something that doesn't exist today. Steve Austin. Streaming. Austin. <laughs> yes. A man barely alive. I could still do it. I mean, <laughs> Uh, if, if, if you get a few drinks with me, I will absolutely sing the uh, Zorro theme song for you. But um, <laughs> it's... Uh, but I actually wanted to read through one of the original narrations here because Gene Roddenberry, according to your book, Gene Roddenberry was like, he was just kept putting it off. Like he just didn't want to do it. And eventually yeah. like the network was like, you have to put this out there. This is a very important part. And so the first memo you have here, uh, it goes something like this. This is the adventure of the United Spaceship Enterprise. Assigned a five-year galaxy patrol, the bold crew of the giant starship explores the excitement of strange new worlds, uncharted civilizations, and exotic people. These are the voyages and its adventures. And it's so bizarre because we know the Star Trek opening. It's ingrained in our minds. And to think it could have been something like this, it's a very <laughs> different world, as Sorry. you said. Before Jeffrey know. Hunter is uh, Captain Christopher Pike, you know, yes. and yes. Uh, Laurel Goodwin is Yeoman Colt. This is these are the stars of your show. <laughs> well, I wonder as you were looking through, what was the most? Because I also I'm fascinated too by uh, early drafts of of the original series scripts, because and which aren't readily available. But I think most fans know of like the original draft of City on the Edge of Forever. But most novelists who came in to write for the show weren't looking to write television. They had no idea about like the budgets or things like that. So they would just write a draft as they saw fits. And were you able to uh, go through original drafts and see like, my God, this, what if, if this had been made today, what, what kind of show could we have had? Yeah, well, it was more actually, funnily enough, it, it tended to go the other way around. So rather than it being too ambitious, they'd be like, oh, they've been told we can't afford to do this. Wow. So um, if you can find it online, Ted Sturgeon's original outline for a mock time, they just beam down to kind of like a, an area with some rocks. <laughs> and uh, the character who is roughly to Pring is just hiding in some rocks. And she kind of jumps out of them and they're like, no, we, need, we can do something a bit grander with this. Um, so that was... 
that's the kind of like a, a pleasantly weird surprise when you see that. Um, and then there's also the like weird things like the logical flaws that were not there in the original outline. So like in the original outline, McCoy knows what's happening to Spock. He's like, oh, I know what this is. And they're like, you know, I have no, 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 we don't want to do that. We, we need to some mystery here. And, you know, um, and then it kind of makes a bit more sense that he goes down to the planet with him because he knows what's going on. And, you know, it's not all this big secret. Um, but you get the sense of how the story was fixed to make it more dramatic. It perhaps not more logical. Um, well, the other one I really like from the original draft, so George, George Clayton Johnson had this idea that, um, ironically, uh, he was going to make Kirk and Scotty best friends. Nice. Um, because he was like, if you're on a submarine or on a destroyer or something like that, the captain and the chief engineer are the two most important people. The XO is like less, less of a big deal, but the engineer, he's like, he's the one person who can tell the captain no. You know, the, the engines will not take it. And, uh, and honestly, they won't. We're not doing that. Um, and he'd written it in. So in the, um, the original version of uh, Mantrap, uh, it's Scotty and Kirk who go down to confront Professor Crater. And then he's just like, and he, t- and he said he told Jimmy Doohan all about it and how what a great team he's written for him. <laughs> and then the script comes out and it's Kirk and Spock instead. So Jimmy was unhappy. The beginning of Jimmy being unhappy. <laughs> have you guys stayed in touch with any of the people that you've interviewed for this great sadness actually I mean Ian you, you, you're more kind of Facebooky than I am I mean the great sadness there were a lot of people on, who we had interviewed who we kind of stayed in touch with um, you know I used to talk to Leonard or to Dorothy uh, relatively frequent intervals you know for different projects um, and not being able to do that now is is quite sad. I mean, they have both had good long lives, but uh, you know that's that's what you miss. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, I'm quite. Uh, I, I'm like Captain Kirk. I've moved on to the next one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Ian, you're better. On yeah, that I stay, I've stayed in touch with a bunch of them. Uh, the Salt Vampire, Sandy Kimple, and I are are very good friends. She's she's lovely. Uh, April Tatro. Uh, who ended up being the uh, revealed by Larry Nemechek uh, on his podcast. But this has, the book has her first print interview. She was the human form of the cat Isis in Assignment Earth. And everybody thought for 50 years <laughs> a different actress had played that role. Larry found her and, uh, you know, she's unbelievable. She's still got her, all of her marbles. She's still very active. Uh, I, I think she's teaching dance. I, she's unbelievable, and uh, she and I have stayed in touch, and I know she was very happy to be included in the book. Um, who else? Uh, you know, Chris Dewan and I are, are very friendly. Uh, George Decay and I are, are very friendly. Uh, Walter, I did his panel uh, in Las Vegas, and that was full circle for me because uh, he was one of the first people I had ever interviewed. I met with him and his daughter at a diner uh, <laughs> across the street from a convention that he was doing when I was 20 years old. And so I gave, I found that interview from my college paper and I had the tech team at this convention put it up on the screen. And I read it from my phone, the first two paragraphs from my phone from 37 years earlier. I think it was 1984 that that interview was done. So, yeah, he and I were both just, wow, it's been a long, long, strange trip to (laughs) Grateful Dead a little bit. Um, so yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun to either 
reinforce some old friendships or to make some new ones. And yes, there were, you know, I was very sad that Leonard wasn't still alive as well. Uh, Leonard was instrumental when Star Trek.com, I was the editor at Star Trek.com for nine years. And when the site rebooted, he wrote the intro for us. Okay. And I said, Leonard, it's like two or three sentences. Can I help you pad this, embellish this a little bit? And he said, absolutely. And when that was done, he said to me, look, Ian, I've, I've known you for a long time. Um, you know where he was a repository of information. Mm-hmm. Shatner was great as Kirk and, and a, uh, he is the face of the franchise, but Nimoy was kind of the curator. You know, he was the one who had all the memories of finest, most minute details. And so I used to go to him with questions when I had questions about it for the, anything for the site. And he basically just said to me, you have my phone number, you have my email, feel free to reach out to me. Don't abuse the privilege and we'll get along <laughs> fine. And that's what I did from, you know, the 2010 to, to when he passed away. I, I had emailed with him about, a, I guess, two months before he passed away, uh, just going over some documentary about his life in Boston um, that he wanted to support. And if he wanted to support it, I was happy to help him. You know what I mean? So uh, that, was, that was the saddest one for me. And as a kid, my very, very, very first Star Trek convention, uh, DeForest Kelly, I was in the balcony. And DeForest Kelly said, okay, anybody have questions? I raised my hand and he says, Yo, young man in the salmon shirt, upstairs and that was me and then who knew that you know years later i would be interviewing him and i did his last interview just before he passed away um and he was the nicest man and his wife carolyn was was wonderful um so there were some great people i wish bill campbell were still around as well he would have been great you know and he was an unbelievable guest star so yeah very enthusiastic man yes we could go on (laughs) ben and i could go on and on with these stories I, I tended to deal with more of the actors. Ben knew a lot of the behind-the-scenes people. Uh, it's why it was a perfect match. Bob, Bob Jasper used to write for us. He used to do a column for us. Um, you know, we we kind of adopted Matt Jeffries and his wife Marianne at the at the end of his life, kind of thing, because we, you know, Penny Penny, he worked for us uh, when we had the magazine. Uh, would would go and kind of look after Matt and Marianne. Um, and Bob, well, Bob was a big character. Um, yeah, always honour me to go and source some wine for him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they've been quite a big part of both of our lives. You know, it's, it's funny when you look at, like, uh, the, the way that some people do remember Star Trek so well. I mean, again, kids, like, at the time, this was a job, and people would show up, mm-hmm. and they would do their work, and then they'd leave, and then they'd go off to another show or, you know, another project or something like that. But, like, Star Trek meant so much to so many people too that for many of them you know this has created a lifetime of of experiences you know it's it's people have undoubted i can guarantee at this point like george takei has probably spent more time at conventions than he ever did on the set of the enterprise <laughs> it's just oh, yeah. oh, well, george george said to me he said um you know you know ben i don't actually remember being in star trek i remember <laughs> telling the stories uh, <laughs> and i think that's true for all of us you know that you yeah it's like like the horse it's like you know you, people can't quite remember what really happened anymore because they remember the thousand times they told the story yeah thousand yeah. times more than the time they spent actually doing it right 
Yeah, I took a, a class from Dorothy Fontana. She taught for in her, in her later years at the American Film Institute, where I went to school for screenwriting. And, and she was lovely and just one of the nicest people you ever meet. But like, you could also tell when she would tell the stories of Star Trek that she was kind of just clicking a play on a tape that she had told many <laughs> times before. And, and this is the story she's told. And, and, and you see those stories on like DVD special features and things like that. And, and it was, it was great. It was lovely, but like it's, you could, you could tell too that like she has a lifetime of memories and so does everyone. Right. And it's like, uh, Star Trek is, is a part of that, but it's still just like everyone else. It's, it's a memory of something from 50 years ago. It's, uh, but for me, you see, that, that again is part of when you're trying to interview someone and you want them to say something they haven't said before, one of the ways you can do it is by getting them to connect the dots between things. Because all too often, people tell a story in isolation. So, you know, I interviewed Dorothy. One of the first interviews I did with her was about the evolution of Spock and the portrayal of the Vulcans. And she had told the stories about them, those bits individually, but she hadn't told the, oh, we did this a bit differently because the last time we'd done that, or I had thought that that was interesting and I wanted to do more with it. So when you can, you know, and it doesn't, it, it makes people look at things in a different way. And, and get them to tell the story in a different way. Um, and I think that, again, is what we try to do with the book. So I, the thing I always talk about is with Leonard, you know, he told all these stories about, okay, the first time he said fascinating in a different way to everybody else, or the first neck pinch, or the first mind meld, or the first whatever. But when you actually write the piece about Spock, and you're sort of going, oh, okay, so... He gets number one's characteristics, so suddenly he's cold and dispassionate. But, you know, at that point, he's still meant to be mesmerizing to women. Um, you know, everyone forgets that. Kind of, there's a little hint of it in, um, in Mud's Women, where, yes. you know, he can, he's like, very oh, can mesmerize women, women you know. <laughs> um, but then they, you know, they, as they introduce all these little bits and pieces and the character kind of comes into focus. And it was only when you, you string them all together that even though I had heard most of those stories lots of times, it was only when you put it in that order and in that context that you suddenly saw, okay, now I get what was happening, you know. Ian, I'd, I'd love to have your thoughts along those same lines. Like, what is your methodology when you do interview someone, especially about something that transpired for them, you know, decades before? It's exactly what Ben said, but part of it is I try to take them back to when they were actually doing it. So I will often start a question with, let's go back 50 years. Huh. So that we're not getting their perspective now. I'm trying to get them into the mindset of where they were when they did it. Uh, or uh, I will find what, and this was one of the keys that Ben keeps referring to in the book, is I will ask the question stating what somebody else said. So th this way, the person you're asking the question to is, is immediately challenged with answering this, maybe the same subject, but answering it in a different way. Oh, you know, Joe said that? Well, I don't remember it that way. Joe being Joe D'Agosta, for example, the casting director. Um, I remember speaking to George and Walter and saying, you know, Joe said this. Uh, it was really interesting talking with Walter about uh, an actor named Anthony Benson who was also up for the role of Chekhov uh, and getting his memories on that. And he went into more detail about that uh, than I had ever heard before. 
so that was really you know interesting. So in, in, to answer your question specifically, that was kind of my goal. Uh, my other rule in interviewing people is to never, ever, ever ask a yes or no question, uh, <laughs> simply because you will get a yes or a no. Uh, and you get nothing out of it. So I'll always try to ask a question that has to at least have an answer, even if they don't want to answer it and they'll dance around it. Uh, look, you know, there were, there were issues in the, in the making of the show. We all know that. Um, but, you know, in some cases, you have to address it. So there are ways to politely address that. And if you don't uh, ask the questions in a confrontational way, you, you'll get more information out of, out of the people that you're talking to. And they were willing to talk about some of these things, uh, which was always interesting to me as well. And remember, this is a licensed book. We're, we're not sitting here trying to have everybody with their daggers out. You know, we, we want to tell a fair, honest story. Yeah, and to show both sides of the story. Exactly. You know, I mean, there's like, so, you know, Bill Shatner hasn't particularly felt the need to defend himself because as far as he was concerned, he was the star of the show. And, and, and frankly, there are memos from Gene Roddenberry saying, Bill is the star of the show. This is, you know, if it comes down to it, that is it. He's more important than anybody else. Including, so, yeah, including Leonard. Including Leonard. Including Leonard, yeah, absolutely. And when Leonard wanted more money, they, they refused. You know. And they said... I mean, then he was gone at the end of season one, you know. Um, so that, you know, try to present it as like, Shatner was concerned that Spock didn't seem like the clever one and Kirk's like the idiot going, oh, you're right, Spock, let's do that. You know, and, and that's just right and proper. Um, he was concerned about how many lines he had as well, and that's probably right and proper as well. I mean, Nick Nick Meyer told me a story about how the first draft of Star Trek II, uh, everybody loved it, apart from Shatner, who hated it. And he was like, oh, my God, I thought this was all going so well. And then he, um, he got all of Bill's notes, and he realized that what it was was that Bill wanted Kirk to be the impetus behind every scene. That when he was in something, he didn't want him to just be going along with something, with somebody else. And he just said, he made these little tweaks and Bill left him a message on his answer machine saying, you're a genius. And he said he kept it so he could play it back to Bill at every opportunity. <laughs> but that, that side of what was going on, uh, I don't think is always presented alongside other people's complaints. You know, if you're, if you're George Takei or Jimmy Dewan and you had two lines in this episode and now you've got one, you just feel aggrieved. If that line makes Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk, you know, it's like the guy with the ideas, the guy with the, the drama, that makes it a better episode. Um, and I'm not sure that that, you know, that story's always been told. And, and obviously, you know, there are people's personal dynamics that twist that a bit as well. And you both know this. I mean, you write scripts, obviously you wrote for Star Trek. So you both know, right? Sometimes you got to give the better line to the more important character in your story. Absolutely. Lisa, I don't think I've ever asked you, did you were working for Voyager when George Takei came on to do the, uh, what was that episode called? Uh, flashback. Remember? No, remember? Flashback. Flashback, that's right. Did you go down on set just to, just to see that in action? Or were you I didn't, busy? unfortunately. I didn't get yeah. the chance. I think I was busy writing another script. That's totally fair. Which again, goes back, I think, to the book. It's how like, yeah, I mean, you, you have these people who worked on on the show and on the, on 
the sets, but like often they were in their own little world and they were so focused then on, they were pulling in 18 hour days just to, <laughs> just to get their little slice of the, of the pie finished up, you know, which is remarkable. And I, I guess the question would be then like in terms of discovering how many parts of the jigsaw puzzle go into the making of a single episode, you know, mm-hmm. was there something there that was surprised you that you were just so fascinated by, but you were like, wow, I'd never actually thought about that, but this is, so interesting. I love the fact that um, they shot on the stage next door to Mission and yes. that the makeup room was between the two stages and it was often shared so that mm-hmm. they would be like, so you'd have the Mission guys over here and the Star Trek guys over here and they were just living in one another's pockets, mm-hmm. you know, and the same with like the writer's building that the, I think Star Trek was on the first floor and Mission was on the second floor. But, you know, I mean, and that's how John Meredith Lucas got his job. He was going in for, you know, he's going in working on Mission and, and you know, Gene Keen had had enough and saw him going to his car and said, hey, do you want to run the show? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically how John Meredith, John told me the story went. Um, and that, yeah, that sense of, uh, you know, all these different people making the show, or like, you know, Bill Tice for the costumes, they, they were trying to save money so they, they couldn't have afforded the costumes if they'd been properly unionized. So he had like a little team of seamstresses down the road and they would come and literally pass the costumes through the windows on Gower Street uh, <laughs> at the beginning of every day so that they didn't get caught by the union. Um, that kind of, you know, that just the kind of reality of it, the kind of, you know, the the silliness of, of, of just like regular work, you know, or Matt Jeff is telling me that there's a story about how they, they had all these old school plasters. They started to use um, boat foam a lot and stuff like that. But anyway, so he, but he's telling me a story about how the plaster would do stuff and then he'd walk away and all the plaster would slide off. The <laughs> <strap> and, you <laughs> know, just that kind of, like, you know, the kind of stupid stories we all have about work. Just wanted to get a bit of that into the book. So I have to ask, uh, what is the next book? Are you going to tackle another series? Uh, yeah, we in and I have split some series between us. So you can kind of work out what we'd be doing because there are some anniversaries coming up. Mm-hmm. So 1987, 2022, that's uh, an anniversary. And then yeah, yeah. Uh, 92, 92, that's an anniversary as well. So, you know, before we wrap up, though, I'd love to ask, because uh, the book is it's very thorough. There's so much behind the scenes material. One thing that's not included, though, is um, uh, work on both the animated series, Phase 2, as well as like the kind of not... Star Trek in the 70s. Star Trek in the 70s. That's all I want to talk about. This is a genuine book that I have in my mind. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> I want to do Star Trek in the 70s. Um, so that you can pull the animated series together with phase two, which I am quite obsessive about and have a lot of stuff from. I want to read it. Let me tell you. More treatments than anyone's seen. There are um, 19 treatments or story outline I have. That's amazing. Um, And only 13 went to commission stage. Um, And James Cooley's another big, Phase two obsessive. He has a lot of stuff on that. And then, of course, there's the Planet of the Titans. Um, and I've, I've, I know where all the Ken Adam uh, artwork for that is. There's some crazy stuff for that. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, I do. But I, I seriously um, I have an idea for a series of books that is Star Trek in the sixties, Star Trek in the seventies, Star Trek in the eighties, Star Trek in the nineties. You know, um, and and looking at the kind of state of play of all of it, and then you put them all together, and you know, you'd have your fifty, sixty years of of Trek. I would be uh, absolutely buying all of those. Because let me tell you, I mean, Phase Two. I don't know why I, I hear the scripts are not good, but like I'm just fascinated. Oh no, some that. of them are great. I'll send you them. I'll send you the scripts. Please. The script for... They're variable. Um, The script for the two-parter, Kitumba, the John Meredith Lucas Heart of Darkness in in going into the Klingon home, Klingon uh, Empire, is a cracking two-part script. It's one of the best scripts, Star Trek scripts that you'd ever read. Um, It's kind of, yeah, Star Trek meets Shogun. Um, oh wow! <laughs> it's it's a cool. It's a very very good good script. Um, uh, some of the others are uh, you know not as good, but they're first drafts. So, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, well, that's not, very true. Not, well. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Like, every few months, I go on the internet and try to find like them online, and I just can't find them anymore. I heard like at some point they were up, but then they've just vanished. And now you only you can you have to buy them like for fifteen dollars a pop or something yeah. like that. And I'm like I'm. Or, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you have a friend that'll do. I'll, I'll there we you. go. I love this. Be- this that'll is- sell them to you for nine ninety nine a pop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite, my favorite phase two story um, that didn't get made is they had this whole story where um, Decker falls into a machine that Zon has been playing around with that turns him into a two dimensional being. Ah. So he, 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 and it's a really, it's basically, it's actually quite like um, next gen episode, the next phase. Yeah, but yeah. you know he's he's walking around and they can't see him because he's two dimensional, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know it's 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 really clever script. Brilliant. And then there's this um, story outline, and then there's this memo from Gene going, "I've just realised how are we going to show this?" <laughs> <laughs> Good point. It's only that. Oh, okay, that one got killed. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. That's so great. Uh, Lisa, any any final questions? Uh, I guess, where can we find you guys on social media? Or can we? I am mostly on Facebook. Uh, I, I've got a Twitter account. I really don't actively use it. I, I've got Instagram uh, most of the time because I'm at my desk at home in New Jersey. So Facebook is what's up. I'm on. I'm easy to reach. Anybody has questions, wants to say hello, be a friend. Facebook is the way to go for me. I'm the other way around. I have, I'm more active on Twitter. Not that active. I'm very erratically active. Um, and then I, yeah, Facebook, I don't really remember to use. But, and then we have our, our website for the company is HeroCollector.com. Absolutely. Um, and of course, the book is Star Trek, A Celebration. It is available now in stores uh, and on Amazon. Pick it up. It's a beautiful hardcover. Uh, looks great on the shelf and some amazing uh, high quality images, behind the scenes images included inside. Um, so for all of us here, listeners, thank you so much for being here today. If you want to connect with us, we are on Twitter at Inglorious Trek and on Facebook and Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts. Be sure to check out our other shows, 430 Movie, uh, Best Movies Never Made, uh, as well as other uh, television shows on the Electric uh, Now app, which you can download on any of your app providers. Um, and we also want to thank our executive producers, Dean Devlin, Mark K. Altman, as well as our sound engineer, uh, Bill Ritter, and our producer, Natalie Miscali. So for Lisa Klink and myself, let's say thank you very much for being here and keep on trekking and glorious, of course. 
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.